You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Late Night Live. Hot topics discussed daily from 11pm onwards. Get involved by calling 0141-375-3434 or search Radio Ramadan 365. Assalamualaikum. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Radio Ramadan 365. I think I'm, we're waiting for a number of guests. We have today our co-host Abdulaziz and shortly our main VIP host Nadim will be on. Abdul, are you there? I'm here, brother. I'm here uh, waiting patiently in the sidelines, uh, waiting to be directed. Uh, yeah, all good on my side. Welcome, welcome to another wee wonderful week. Uh, Nadim Bai, are you there as well? I am here, alhamdulillah. Let's, let's get the show kicking. Um, I'd like to introduce our first guest, um, Shahid Bai. Uh, Shahid Kayyum, uh, can you hear us? Yes, assalamu alaikum, yes. Please introduce yourself to the radio listeners and the team here. Yes, my name is Shahid Kayyum. I am currently working as a well-being worker for an organization in Alawa called Wellbeing Scotland. I work in schools, uh, secondary schools and primary schools in, in Alawa. Excellent. And, and um, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I know a little bit about your history in terms of, so it's, just, it's in essence like counselling? Um, there's aspects of counselling to it, but it's not fully counselling. But yes, it is. There's definitely aspects of counselling to it. I've done full counselling in the past in, in uh, my roles in, in prison work, but that unfortunately um, is finished now. But yes, I have done that in the past as well. Sure, sure. Well, look, um, I, I think uh, I mean, this is a very unique moment in all of our lives. And I'm sure for the clients that you look after, um, do you call them clients, Shahid Bai? Yes, I do. Yes. Okay. Um, and are you able to work right now? Yes. Um, I'm very lucky. My, my job has enabled me to... Uh, work with clients uh, over the phone, so uh, and and some by email as well if they prefer that. But yes, um, the, the schools have have contacted the families of these young people, and uh, they have got permission for me to phone the house. So actually, it's sort of um, morphed a little bit from uh, speaking to the young people to actually speaking to the parents as well and giving them a little bit of solace and a little bit of. Uh, um, just a little bit of time to speak to somebody neutral uh, in these difficult times. What are the issues? I mean, we had a head teacher on, and so what we're wondering is what what are the issues that occur to families and and perhaps their children? You're talking about specifically during these times, or are you talking about generally? Just just um, these times with coronavirus, I mean, you've got even more stress. So compared, why not? Actually, that's a good idea, Shad, but what was it like before? And now what's it like? Well, before, you know, I was working with um, a whole range of different young people uh, from primary schools right up to secondary schools. And, you know, I'd be working with uh, people that were referred because, 
uh, they're having problems in school, you know, not relating to other kids, or uh, I'd be working with uh, people that had issues at home with family life, um, uh, or just people that had, you know, in, in the secondary school, there's a very common thread of people having lots of um, problems with self, self-esteem and mm-hmm. uh, confidence and, you know, j- just uh, those kind of issues. Of course, of course. So so now we have an added assault of, um, you know, everybody having to be at home. The ha- head teacher we had on last week um, was very poignant to indicate that, you know, families have this added stress of, well, am I going to work? Yeah. Do I have work being furloughed and income, money for food? Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's a massive thing. It's, it, it's a huge thing because you've got, you've got all the normal issues of the young people, and then you've got on top of that issues of the parents because uh, like, it's exactly like you said, so many of them have got issues of what's, what's my future? Uh, and you know what's what's my short-term future? Forget about long-term future. A lot of them have had to, uh, like you said, give up on their jobs. They're not sure if they're going to get them back when things start up again. When are things going to start up again? Um, but then on top of that, you know, the, the kids have got the extra pressure of being stuck in the house. For a lot of these young people, a house wasn't a great place for them in the, in the first place. So for yeah. them to be now stuck at home is <coughs> sorry. Um, is it is like a, an, an addition to that it's mm-hmm. like an, an extra part to, to the, the whole nightmare uh, so it's it's having to deal with all of that basically okay okay um and um are, are, so do you, do you are you able to give solutions like um okay people need um links to get getting food and um advice it's you know where to get it from uh, with, with, this, with regard to practical stuff like that, we we'll leave that to the, uh, the council. Uh, yeah. they, they, they tend to contact them. My job is very specific to uh, the mental health and well-being of, of, of the young people, uh, as opposed to the, you know, the, the physical side of things. But obviously, we, we do care about that, and you know where we can help, we do. But that's not a core part of our job, no. Okay. Okay. Um, Abdul. Is- yeah. My co-host, I think he has a couple questions as as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Salaam brother. Waalaikum salam warahmatullahi. How's the fasting going for you anyway? Alhamdulillah, yes, good. Yeah. I remember we had a, a little bit of a discussion with some uh, some friends of mine over WhatsApp, and we were saying in, in a strange way, it's been uh, quite a relaxing Ramadan because it's not the rush. You know, yeah. to, to get yeah. the iftar finished and rush, 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 and get out for the rally prayers, and then you know, it's it, it's been a yeah. bit a bit strange, but actually very relaxing. Alhamdulillah. Uh, alhamdulillah. You know, it's it's. I think it's the exact same sentiment for man, woman, and child all over. I, I, I find this one of the most intimate, touching uh, months of Ramadan I've, I've ever experienced. Alhamdulillah. Yes. Yeah, because there's yes, just no. There's nothing coming in between your abadat and your fasting and hopefully getting some taqwa, you know, so, so alhamdulillah, there's no excuses, this one. No, but, you're uh, absolutely right, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, yeah, so alhamdulillah, that's a really, first of all, I must say, it must be a really gratifying job, you know, being in a place can where be, you can actually can help, be, you help know? someone. Yeah. It, it um, really can 
maybe um, if, if you if you get feedback, a lot of the time you don't get a lot of feedback about how much you've helped somebody. You hear from a third party that you've helped them a lot, which is a bit strange. Um, but when you get direct feedback that you've helped somebody, it's, it's, it's really good. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So, brother, Shahad, so let's say, yeah. for instance, there's a, there's, a, you're, you're, uh, there's a teacher, there's a maybe a child that's kind of maybe highlighting up. I think we're getting a little bit of uh, kind of after noise here, but we'll try and sort that out. Please um, right. bear with us. Um, yeah, so why would a, a teacher maybe highlight someone? What, what, what's, what's the telltale signs in order for them to then go and maybe take them to your good self? What, what, what would be highlighted? What would they, what would they be looking for? It varies a lot. It varies a lot. Um, it could be anything. It, it could be that uh, a child is very, very disruptive in class, or it, it could range right to the opposite, where a child is very quiet in class. Um, a lot of the time, teachers have knowledge of what a child's situation is like at home, and that can be a very much of a, a, a warning sign as well. Um, you know, if they have contact with the parents, you know the, how, how volatile the parents are. You know, in a lot of these circumstances, the parents are... Um, have issues of their own and have, you know, are known to, for instance, the social work department because of issues of their own, and therefore the, the children will automatically be uh, highlighted by the school, and and so it's it's things like that. But it could be just, you know, a, a very simple thing that a child is very very quiet through yeah. a period of time and not communicating with a lot of people, and something yeah. that's it's really important that teachers pick up in that because obviously yeah. you know for a teacher. It's a bit of a godsend if you have a nice, quiet child. But if they're too quiet, teachers, a good teacher will pick up on that and, you know, refer them and we can try and find out what's happening. Mm. Yeah, because obviously back in our day, you know, there wasn't much like, like that for us. I think it was no, maybe, no. What, what did we call our teacher? That Maybe if there was a problem, was that the recreational teacher? Or what was she called? I'm trying to think. Guidance teacher? Guidance teacher. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> That's what it was, yeah. Um, so, um, well, so that would be pretty. Yeah. And obviously, must get more. Does it get more complicated as they get older, and there's maybe behavioural patterns when they get a little bit older. I don't know if it gets more complicated, but it, it certainly changes. Um, you, you do see very specifically in the uh, secondary school, they're much, they're much more able to um, talk about exactly what their issues are, and, and they have the vocabulary to say. I have self-esteem issues, you know, whereas a person in primary school doesn't necessarily know what that is. They might be having a lot of self-esteem issues, but they don't have the language, you know, to, to be able to say that. Whereas in mm. secondary school, they've learned that and they can come along and say, you know, I've got a lot of problems with how people perceive me, etc. that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, and brother, is, is obviously there's nothing, there's no template for... Uh, fixing people's minds and whatnot, and there's no, no. one thing that they all come to. No, Everyone's yeah. different, yeah. But what, what yeah. seems to be? Do you get a feel of what seems to be the thing that's bothering a lot of people now, as as, as a society in general? Uh, I, it, that, that's a really difficult one because I don't think there is. I don't think you can generalise too much, but I, I will say that this this thing I've, I mentioned a couple of times today already of young people having very low self-esteem, having, having a very low self-worth. That seems to be very, very common uh, amongst um, the secondary school pupils. And it seems to be that there's a lot of different factors in that. There, there are a lot of different factors in that. Um, 
And I, I think there's a lot of confusion. Uh, I think that, that, that's a big thing, actually. Young people are very confused about who they are and what their identity is, and that, that can be for a lot of different mm -hmm. reasons. But Shy, shy yeah. by, I mean, it comes to the main focus of um, tonight's topic, actually. I think I remember you talking about this to me once, and yes. everything comes from the childhood, and so that her children, you know, often are the ones who are... Um, hurt as adults and so yeah. that relates to a lot of these people who are in prisons as well yeah um, and so your experience um, when you were you were requested to come in um, and you know when you were talking to these people so you found that very uh, consequential from childhood and trauma I guess well, it was very different in prison um, because I, I was specifically talking to prisoners who had an experience of childhood abuse of some sort, whether that was physical abuse, verbal abuse, or sexual abuse. Um, mm -hmm. So they were, it was very, very obvious that they had they had been, uh, that they had a lot of issues because of what happened to them as a child. And it was, there was a direct link there, and sometimes, sometimes they didn't see that themselves. And it took me to point that out to them. Once I did, it was you know, it was like a, a light going off in their in their um, in heads. But mm -hmm. it was very obvious to me that um, a lot of them wouldn't have been in prison if they had not suffered what they had gone through as a child. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Shied by. Um, we're going to now introduce. Um, Nadim was going to do this. Uh, our, there's an imam a chaplain that's on. Yes. So, Nadim, please go ahead. Sure. Uh, thank you for... If I could just uh, introduce our uh, other guest, Imam Ajmal, uh, if he's there. Assalamu alaikum, Imam Ajmal. Nadim. Yes, we're here. Thanks for, thanks for waiting patiently. So, you're... Um, if I could introduce you, you're actually one of the chiefs chaplains in the prison service. Could you tell us a little bit about what that actually means? Well, I'm actually the what's known as the national advisor to the prison service and Islamic chaplaincy coordinator. So it involves training, um, recruiting, training and developing Muslim chaplains to work inside the prison service. Okay, what does a chaplain actually mean? What does that mean? Because a lot of people aren't familiar with that term. What, what does that actually mean? Chaplain, as opposed to an imam, is somebody who offers pastoral care to the, um, depending on his, his domain. And in prisons, that means prisoners, but also can mean staff as well. So pastoral care and spiritual care for their mental and physical well-being. So that, in essence, is what a chaplain is. Um, to guide the inmate through his journey from the start of prison to the end, and also a chaplain is like um, a go-between for that inmate when he goes outside and he becomes what's known as an ex-offender and be the link for through care so that he doesn't come back again. So it's basically keeping somebody's mental 
well being together as well as putting him in a position that so when he leaves prison that he's not going to basically come back in again. Is that right? Yes, well, we're not alone in this. We work as a team. We work with psychologists, we work with social work, we work with housing, um, and we work with known as through care officers. It's a whole um, body of people working, of professionals working. It's not like in the old days where you go in, that's it, you go back out. There's a whole mechanism in place yeah. now to stop pre-offending. And as part of your job, are you seeing only Muslim prisoners or is it uh, a whole group of people? No, um, well, a chaplain, although I'm specific, the people I recruit and also I train and develop and the SPS recruits, and I'm sponsored for their training and development, is a generic job. Anybody that's a human will, um, regardless of his faith, he doesn't have any faith. A chaplain should be meeting him. It's actually one of the essential requisites for a chaplain in, in what I would consider is to have a profound love for humanity. That's a masterpiece of Allah's creation, human. Okay. Um, so I've got to ask you, I mean, it's a very kind of unusual job. What inspired you to become a Muslim chaplain or even a chaplain in prison. I mean, why would you do a job like this? Well, actually, uh, maybe it was the calling somebody. I once said to um, a, or the priest, oh, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And he kept saying, no, you're the right man, you're the right man. And it was Swiss meant for weeks. So I don't want it. He said, Muhammad, it's not what you want, it's what God wants. So actually my life in chaplaincy started in the Central Mosque, Glasgow, in 1994. I was recruited as an imam who could speak English to look for youth tarbiyah, the development of youth. Um, and I was recruited by um, three individuals at that time, um, Bashir Mann, um, um, Dr. Akram, um, who was involved in lots of community work, and a gentleman by Taj Bhatti, you might know him, uh, who was the education secretary at that time. And the idea was to get somebody who was fluent in English who could cope with the youth. And there was a government grant available. Um, and this, um, this Glasgow Central Most recruited me for that. And from there, I had an opportunity to work in prisons in 1994. Um, and my first call ever was, actually, funnily enough, it wasn't a Muslim. It was a person who was not a Muslim and it was very difficult for the prison authorities to handle him because he kept on asking for Allah and their chaplain of the establishment contacted Central Mosque and Central Mosque asked me to go there and that's how it all began. Um, it wasn't planned. It was something which by fate, I would say, I was put into and that was 26 years ago, two life sentences. <laughs> and, wow. And I'm still there now. Um, Did you ever work with um, Shahid Bai? No, I've never worked with Shahid. Okay. Shahid must be working with psychology. I've been working in chaplaincy. So, okay. Which prisons was it uh, you, you were in? Um, well, I covered the whole of Scotland. So 
Um, but at that, 1994, it had been around that time, Low Moss, Berlini, right. Shots. Um, um, right. Yeah. That, 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 that's, uh, I used to work in uh, Berlini, Shots, uh, Perth, um, and one other, which I've forgotten now. But yeah, uh, so, but it was only like one day a week, so that's probably why I didn't see you. Yeah, that was probably. And also, you know, Chaplas has moved on a lot now. Whereas it used to be chaplaincy on its own. Now, 26 years later, I see it being amalgamated and working side by side with lots of other professions. Chaplaincy is now underneath what's called the Justice Department. And we work with psychologists, um, health professionals, um, through care professionals, integrated case management people. So it's been a progression from 1994 to its present day state. Um, so it's moved on a lot. I think that's probably because of the forward thinking of the SPS. Uh, um, uh, Imam Ajmal? Yes, sir. Aslam, like it's Abdul Aziz. Okay, Abdul Aziz, Yeah, uh, nice to have you on, brother. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, you know what? What a, a great position to be in, mashallah, doing Allah Subhanahu's work and hopefully helping someone at the same time. So, so, so let, let's have a scenario here, why, whereby you know, obviously, someone's committed a crime, they've been found guilty, they've done it. Obviously, the, the freedom's gone, which is the most precious thing we have, and we don't actually realise it. We take it for granted. I'm just thinking about that there right now. So what's, what's going through the minds of the, of the people when, obviously, you go and see them when they're in Berlin? How, how, how is it you console them, and how do you give them guidance? Well, I'll just, well, there's two types of you know, people that come in. One is called a re-offender, and one time is called the first-time offender. Now, if you take the first-time offender... Mm -hmm. who's never been to prison before. That's a traumatic experience for that person. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, and depending on his age as well, you know, I've, I've been looking at, um, when I was working at Pullman, um, youngsters, um, and from, say, maybe the age of 17, 18, to people 62, 63 years old. <laughs> it's been absolute, and, um, and not just males, female, a female lad recently was about 63, 64 years old. Muslim. And they, can I say, when they see a Muslim chaplain or a imam dressed in the usual garb, <laughs> you don't need to be dressed in the usual garb, just that person, for them that is a tremendous ray of hope. Yeah. Tremendous. Um, I was just two young men who had just been released for manslaughter. Um, they were recounting the first day they were in prison, and I visited them. And, um, and it was for a relative informed, a relative of mine, to go and visit them. I said, okay. And I took a prayer mat for them, um, just me beads, and asked the officer to open the door. And they were absolutely astounded. There was this person, me, wearing a turban, beard, um, jubah, and with a prayer mat. And from since then, a friendship has occurred. But they told me the impact that had on their first day. And it made, it gave them so much confidence. Mm -hmm. 
that things will 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 be managed. Um, don't get me wrong; it was not been easy for them, but just the fact that the Muslim chaplain turned up on the first day yeah. from their account, which I never realised, was a tremendous reassurance. You see, we do things and we do we take them for granted. We don't realise the little things that we do, the huge yeah. impact it has on other people's lives. Imam Ajmal, you were saying that you, you obviously had a, a big impact on prisoners that are there. Can I ask you, when a Muslim prisoner goes into prison, what kind of services do you offer him? Or what can you offer him by being there that they might not ordinarily get? Well, the first is the visual. <laughs> um, again, I'm saying something. I'm reiterating the words of an inmate, a constant reoffender. The first is the visual appearance, just being their presence. Um, one of the inmates said to me, he said, he said, you know, we long just to see you walk in the halls. Just your presence. He said, you don't know what, that, what this means to us. And to that, I was totally shocked. Are we talking about Are we talking about Muslim prisoners here? Yeah, Muslim prisoners. Okay, so that that's going to lead me to a question. If they're looking, if they're so happy to see a Muslim chaplain, uh, you know, Imam, it's so great to see you. What are they doing there in the first place? I mean, I think this is what I have to ask you. What? How did these people end up there in prison in the first place? If they're so so considering, you know, so uh, uh, anxious about their Islam and seeing a Muslim chaplain there, what about when they're actually, you know, how do you feel that they end up there in the first place? Because well, they obviously aren't considering their Islam before they go in. Well, the team, you know, has to have that concept of criminality. I wouldn't even, you see, I've been very careful not to talk as prisoners using the words as inmates, right? Nadim, anybody could be there. Sure, we just okay. Blessed. We've not yeah. had those adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a whole range of factors. There's education, adverse childhood experiences, which Shahai just mentioned, education, lack of education, housing, um, peer groups, parental co-quality, parental input, you know, poverty. There's a whole, um, and even diet has an impact on a person's um, the, um, the, the factor in, in committing a crime. And we've got to remember, you know what the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said? Yeah. Ullukum khata'un. All of you are sinners. And the, best of, and the best of sinners are those who repent. So when I go into a prison, I don't go there to preach or teach. I go there as just a fellow sinner. That's yeah. a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I go there to listen to them and learn from them. And I think the fact, and it's it's so daunting, you know, when I talk to them, I think to myself in my mind, that could have been me. Or what's even more scary, that was me. And you know what's really scary, Nadim, 
that is me. So, so that's a very good point. Yeah. So it's the you know go. I I once picked up a um, a lecture from the Christian Shelf. I was waiting for my flock to come in, and it said on it, "God doesn't hate sinners. He hates those sinners who don't admit they're sinners." Hmm. So we're all sinners. We all make these mistakes. And we are so blessed that we are on the outside. And some people didn't have that chance. But, you know, if I know for a fact if I was in that set of circumstances, I'm pretty sure I'd be inside myself. It's just the mercy of Allah I'm sitting on the outside just now. So, uh, Imam, uh, you're absolutely right, and I take what you're saying. So, once, say, somebody is unlucky enough to end up in prison and let's say they're from a Muslim background, what is it that they can expect when they get in in terms of how they can, I mean, it's a very broad question, but what could you try and summarize what kind of situation they may might well find themselves in and what you can offer them? that. If it's a first-time offender, the whole, it's just a totally new world for them. They don't know what's hit them. If it's a repeat offender, well, he's used to the system, he'll cope. But for a first-time offender, as I said, the first is the visual presence. Secondly, to meet and talk to that person. Not talk to that person, sorry, listen to that person. He just wants to get, get it all off what's in his heart, what's in his mind. And then keep on meeting him. And I remember there was a person who had, and it's so important, you know, this keep on meeting them is so important. You, you actually save people's lives. There was a young man in maybe about 16, over about 20 years ago, I think maybe. It was when my mother died. So it was about 15 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, he had been put into prison. He'd never been to prison before, and I'd visit him, and he'd cry and cry and cry. I'd visit him again and cry and cry and cry, and then his trial was happening. Then I would go to a trial and just in the public mm -hmm. area, and and then um, copping him back, and um, and he would just cry and cry and cry, and one. And when my, actually, I'm, I was at my mother's funeral, and he was there standing at my mother's funeral. I was so surprised. Like, how did you get out? He said, I just got out today. I want to know where you were to thank you. I said, why? What, why? Mm -hmm. He said, well, last night, I was just about to end it all. Mm -hmm. Take his life. But he said, mm -hmm. something stopped me. In the morning, well, it was, yeah, it was actually in the morning. Yeah, it was in the morning. Mm -hmm. Something stopped me. I was contemplating it. The officer came, um, opened the door and told me to get out. He said, I thought I was going to my trial. Mm -hmm. He told me, on you go, give me his, his possessions. And I walked out a free man. And he said, I want you to thank you because you saved my life. So sure. that pastoral care, just being there is huge. It's immense. You know, it, for, we are free citizens. We meet our wife, we meet our kids, we meet our mates, we meet everyone. 
this is a person locked up in a cell going through a trial. The past yeah. will get the, 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 the ability to talk to somebody without that person judging him and just listening to him and talking about hope is immense. It's the most, it's the most rewarding thing one can do. Other than that, we offer congregational services like Salawi Jumat, Juma. There's um, learning classes with people who don't want to learn. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. who don't want to learn. We mm-hmm. have, we've got some of the um, so-called, I'm using the word so-called here now, scourge of the Muslim community who were flung out of the mosques because the mosques basically wanted an easy time. They didn't want to take these people on, so they flung them out. And when every time you fling somebody out and seclude him, you create a criminal. So I'm not naming any names, but some of the scourge of the so-called so-called scourge of the Muslim community are now learning Ali Bata Tha in in the jails. Now that's very interesting. So really, what you're saying is that some of these people that end up in prison. They learn there, but yet you think that they, let's say, have been turned away by other mainstream Muslim institutions like some of the mosques and not been welcomed there. Is that what you're saying? I don't like to give any names because I'm bound by the Data Protection Act. I can say, you know, some of these names, from personal talking to the inmates, Mm. a significant portion of them were flung out of mosques for misbehaving. Yeah. And when you think of seclusion is the worst thing you can do to an individual. And my so, governor, the governor of HPMP, Berlini, um, he said to me, if you want to create criminals, seclude them from society. Now that's interesting because often when you are in mosques, you know, when you're reading your namaz and the kids are playing out in the background, often people say, look, get those kids out here. They should be, they should be removed. Um, and, you know, I've often wondered whether actually is that the best way to deal with kids? And also, let's face it, if you are perfect, you, you know, you might not need the, the support of a mosque or a, a support group like that. Would you agree? Um, well, you know, I just recently, um, chaplain, um, prison chaplaincy is at the rough end. Um, imams, um, all due respect to them, um, sheikh, all due respect to them. They're in the comfort zone compared to us in the prison. In prison, when you're actually working to change a person's life, um, you well, people have personally sworn at me, FB to your mother and your father, and this and that. Somebody tried to take a go at me, and he was mm-hmm. sustained by the other prisoners. And mm-hmm. we never banned them from our services. That's the worst now thing that you do. Now um, that's very interesting. So the kind of people you're going to be dealing with, it's not like going to be like a mosque where everybody's expected to be very disciplined and orderly. You're getting people who have a lot of issues, can be violent, can be quite aggressive. I'm sure that when they speak, a lot of them um, don't always watch their P's and Q's, if you know what I mean. They probably use a lot of foul language. 
but you've got to be able to handle that if you're a chaplain in the prison service. Is that right? Yes, well, that's the... That, if you want to become a sheikh, don't go to the prison. Because if you want to be shaken up, go to the prison. Okay. So you want to become a sheikh, don't go to the prison, man. If you want to be shaken so, up... Okay. Okay, so I've got to ask you a question then. If, you, if that's what you're saying, you've got to be shaken up. Do you believe that you've got to have a certain type of constitution or a certain type of personality to be able to handle that kind of prison work? And what is that kind of personality? What kind of constitution? Does that mean you need to have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt before you go in? Do you need to have... Is that as important as your... Um, Islamic knowledge, or do you just have to be quite tough? What 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 do you need? Or tough skin? Number one quality is a profound love for humanity, and to be able to see other people's good points and to see your own weak points. And a number three quality. I'm, I'm just saying there's one, two, three, but they all are equal. It's to actually yep. get up in the night yep. and pray for the people that you meet in front of Allah. Pray for them. And forgiveness, to be able to forgive. It's not about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. This is far, far more powerful than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. jiu-jitsu. These, these are the qualities of the prophets. <laughs> sure. Of these course. Of the prophets. Um, and also the um, realizing our own emptiness and meaningless um, and uh, okay. this is a service this is a service to his majesty Allah that we're doing and it's a, okay. a, a privilege so these are the essential qualities and if you have those essential qualities everything else just um, adds on to it. It's actually a service and a privilege, I think. So um, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, um, do you enjoy your job? You know, that's a strange question. Do I enjoy my job? It's destroying my health. <laughs> ask my doctor. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it is extremely difficult but extremely rewarding. If you want to do the job properly, it's extremely difficult. But extremely rewarding, but if you want to just use it to pay the rent, it's well, it's it's it's, it's easy, but uh, but it'll be boring. It's something yeah. which I actually, yeah. for me, this is a purpose in my life. Isn't a job? Um, yeah, extremely difficult. If you want to change people's lives, it's so it's the most difficult thing to do <coughs> to change people's lives. But in the same hand, it's extremely rewarding. So. Um, yeah, um, the 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 mind saying yes, the body saying no, and so I don't really know. Um, what else? Okay, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, the other question I've got to ask is: um, a lot of people listening to this might wonder if they actually want to become chaplains or follow in that sort of path. If let's say, for example, that they did, and there's somebody out there listening to this and thinks, you know, that's something that I would like to do. I'd like to go into the prison service and help to change people's lives in prison. What's the pathway that they can actually go down to do that? 
do they have to have their hires, their O grades? No. Do they have to go to college? You're a doctor. They're not saying prevention is better than cure. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's work on them before they get to prison. Let's work on the youth. The old, um, it's not just the youth now, it's, it's old people as well. Let's work on mankind before they get to prison. When it's, no, when I, I, I mean, people that want to actually become chaplains, that's yeah, what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. Um, from nine, a significant part from 1994 to about 2004, I worked in through care with, with prisoners um, as they were being released or before they were or on, they were on the verge of going to prison. So if you want a back, if you want a case of what chaplaincy is, is to work before prison or after prison um, and then when an opening comes up and you still want to become a chaplain, um, well it's easy, you don't really need immense Islamic knowledge this is about human qualities in fact human qualities is Islamic knowledge you know? so it's understanding humans understanding what they're all about and so the so the training ground of this is those vulnerable people, vulnerable people who are on the risk of crime um, or have come out from prison and working with them. And that is the training ground becoming a Muslim chaplain. And if that is there, then you have a far greater understanding of... But, the, but, but there must be some kind of there must be some kind of certificate that you have to get or some kind of qualification. Um, isn't, isn't that the case? Well, we have chaplains who, some chaplains with small faiths who don't have any qualifications. The, the, um, when a person goes to university and he gets an engineering degree, he can be a shopkeeper, he can be a taxi driver, it doesn't mean he becomes an engineer. Yeah, there's courses out there like the Islamic um, chaplaincy course in Markfield um, Institute of Higher Education you can get into chap you can get into chaplaincy with an alum degree, you can get into chaplaincy doing um, some other spiritual degree but that doesn't mean you, you, you become a good chaplain. The essential requisite is that thing to provide, to have love for humanity. So yeah, there's courses out there but it's not necessarily that these courses will get you in. Um, a person goes to a three-stage interview and he's checked. You might have to do um, a written oral paper. You might have uh, an assessment um, to assess what he's like. But there are other people who are, are out there who've got tremendous experience just working with humans who walked in and become okay. chaplains. Okay, so, I think so, I think I think Brother Abdul wants to ask something there. Yeah, uh, yeah, Brother. So, um, you know, I was just trying to picture uh, someone coming into prison, first offender, like you said there. Um, obviously, that person's mindset must be that you know everyone is judging me out there now. Uh, my place in society is tarnished. No one wants to know me. Even possibly a mother, the parents have disowned them, friends have disowned them, and they've, they've obviously thought that, you know, I'm portraying this person and look what's happened to me now. And obviously they've lost hope for life, as it is, basically. And obviously you walk in 
and then you try and pick up the pieces for them. Um, just imagine, what is it you say to someone like that that thinks there's just no hope to go on to the future? What, what, what piece of advice do you give that person? Well, first I would listen. I listen to everything I said, and then I would just say, do you realise how much Allah loves you? I've just come here to tell you one thing. Allah loves you. And that is just such a blow to them, those those two sentences. Yeah. And and you know, can, can I just say, brother, Alhamdulillah, you know, you, you, you mentioned two things that were really very important. Number one was that, you know, Alhamdulillah the Imams do a lot of work, but still at the same time they're not getting pushed and they're not getting tested like maybe not all I'm just saying maybe the, the they've got it kushti. Mm. But whereas Alhamdulillah you're going into the absolute the dra dragon's den as it were mm -hmm. and you're trying to bring people back around to get them on the rails again. And and I'm just thinking how much of a uh, how can I put this? How how beautiful of a situation that you're actually witnessing someone coming around and asking Allah SWT for Toba. I think that must be a beautiful actual moment. I'd love to be in a situation like that to actually witness that. Yes, um, yeah, that's what I said, you know. There was a time I was a consultant engineer on hunting for on about 110 grand a year. And doing the prison work, I was on £50 a week. And what compensated it for is exactly what you just said. That's compensated for it. Yeah. And that's my reward, you know, that, that keeps me going. That kept me going through my times of hardship, financial hardship, is what you just mentioned. It's that reward, you know. Mm. Um, and money can't... Not sure, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely touched, brother. I can only imagine you being in a prison cell, someone's freedom's gone, you know, the, 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 the reputation's absolutely tarnished, they've got nothing to live for, and the biggest thing is, is that when they, they get their freedom, eventually when they go into the big bad world again, how do they pick up the pieces, where do they start, where do they go, do they take, who do they go and see first? You know, it's it just, the, there's so many questions, so many things to actually get right here. And I think your job is one job that I think this has really had a profound effect on me now, actually. I'm really privileged to, to listen to you, brother. Well, you know, I'd like to give you an example. Um, I was quite unwell, and my boss phoned me. And, that, and my boss is the same level as assistant chief constable, very high-ranking. She's not a Muslim. I'm talking about a few years ago. My she's she's left. She's retired now. She said, "Ajmal, we've got a 63 year old lady, Muslim, first time offender. I want you to go and see her." So what? I want you to. I want to go to see her just now. So I made a trip, um, a 55 mile round trip, 70 mile round trip, to see her, and she was actually taken aback. And then we. She couldn't speak English, only spoke Punjabi. Um, then I would visit her every week and took her through the journey. And on the last, and there was all sorts of complications. Um, they were trying to deport her because she only had a Pakistani passport, despite living in this country for so many, 
about 30, 40 years, but she never um, bothered cl claiming the UK passport. So got her through that journey, got her through the other journey, and on the day of release, she she was that simple. She expected the prison van to drive her back to her um, <laughs> locality. I was, I was going to mention the locality in Glasgow um, and drop her off because a prison van, um, she said, um, who's going to take me back home? <laughs> Is a prison van going to take me back home? I said, no, no. I asked. I said, well, it's unfortunate, but we'll accompany her to the door. And she got to get her relatives to pick her up. So I saw her on the streets. Um, a few weeks ago, I said, Auntie, how are you doing? And she was so happy, hugged me, and said, this is my daughter, this is my wife. And that feeling, you know, um, when we talk about inmates, we get to think, oh, yes, it's the young gangs or the bulk shields and all this. But it's old men, old women as well now. We are talking about lockdown. Why you're in lockdown? Life in the prisons with um, Mohammed. Uh, Imam Mohammed Ajmal, uh, who is one of the senior chaplains at, in working in the prison service, and um, he's here telling us about what life is actually like in prisons. Uh, Ma, uh, Ma Ajmal, are you are you there? I'm still here. That's great, mashallah. Uh, I'll just leave that with Abdul Aziz because he was. Uh, you guys were talking about something quite interesting, but. One of the question, one of the things, if it's okay, uh, if I can just mention something um, at the moment that, uh, in terms of the arc, which is where Radio Ramadan is normally, um, you know, held from, uh, there is uh, an appeal to raise money for the stained glass window project, and this is obviously going to be the ninety-nine names of Allah. There's another eleven names that are left and you can sponsor them uh it's a, a thousand pounds each uh the names are al-quddus al-hakam al-raqib al-hayi al-muqaddam as well as uh, uh more and these are costing a thousand pounds each and inshallah these are there to beautify the building and to inspire people in terms of the islamic work that inshallah will carry on so abdulaziz uh, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering. So, let's say, for instance, you, you, you're someone's came into prison. You're, you're trying to guide them. So, what, what kind of things would you actually say specifically to someone that's coming? And then, and then, obviously, when they're leaving and then they, they go out to the big bad world, um, what help is there afterwards? Because does your chaplain say finish? Once they've been released from prison, and then if not, what's needed for those people to stop them reoffending? In your opinion, you see, it's just um, the chaplain is part of the um, department called Head of Justice. There's psychology there, health there. Um, there's through care there. Through care means exactly what you're saying. What's after prison? Mm -hmm. Prison also puts them in um, contact with social work, housing. So all these things are there, but chaplaincy doesn't finish for people like me um, who have to live in, in the city centre of Glasgow where you meet the families of the inmates before um, while they're in and 
you meet the inmates as they get out. And they're so eager to get advice from from from, from the chaplain. Um, so there's, if we're not careful, we'll just be sucked into this. So we have to what's known as professional boundaries, um, and then let them let the other organizations take over the care of that. But at the same time, we are there to point at the right direction. Um, so we're not engulfed into all because we because we are our domain will be the prison. But we're standing in the middle as well to make that facilitate that process um, for the outside in, in the various organisations. But generally speaking, the prison takes care of all that um, rather than the chaplain. The prison will look into the housing needs of that individual. They will look into other. Um, some people, some inmates are actually, um, well, inmates are taught skills in prisons. Um, yeah. For instance, um, there's um, how to fix bicycles, there's things like um, brick lane, there's things like um, um, hair, hairdressing, there's whole lots of yeah. skills in, in there. Um, I once took my car to a place in, in the East End of London, and the guy just fixed alternators. He takes your old alternator in and puts in, and re and puts in a reconditioned one at mm -hmm. something like um, a third of the price or a quarter of the price, and asked. I was just talking. He's not a Muslim. I said, "That's fantastic." He said, "Yeah." He said, "I got the initiative while he was in prison, hmm. and the prison helped him while he got outside. And he's got a very um, um, successful business in in supplying um, reconditioned alternators to cars. So there's a whole lot of services over there." But this is only there if the, if the individual wants to take on those services. Yeah. You know, if he doesn't want to do that, or if he wants to just go over there, because the biggest thing that's um, depriving him is his own mates that put him into prison. Yeah. If they're there mm, waiting for yeah. him in the hired convertible car, you know, and then let's jump in and let's, let's go back to the good old days. Well, that's the biggest downfall. So you can't la You can't force anybody. That individual has got to make that choice. Yeah. Do I leave my bad company, and do I start afresh? You see, what we've got to bear in mind: um, the prison's like a great big washing machine. The cops—they're like the laundry men. They bring in a dirty washing, we wash them. We wash it. It goes back outside. And outside in the community gets dirtied again. Mm. Uh, Imam uh, Ajmal, the one question I'd like to ask, obviously everybody's in uh, this coronavirus uh, situation at the moment. Um, people are under lockdown. The people in the prison service obviously already under a kind of lockdown. How has the coronavirus changed the situation in the prison service right now? What changes have you had to make what changes are the prisoners having to make? And, and how is that going to change things for everyone? Well, as you know, um, social distancing, due to social distancing, we don't have our congregational prayers any longer. Um, like, um, so no Juma? Yeah, no Juma and things like that. No group sessions any longer. Um, what has been supplied now is DVDs, um, which 
we, we would bring in, or through the radio channel or the TV channel in the prison, we would issue um, recordings. And the funny thing is, everybody could everybody could listen to these recordings now, whereas the services were only for Muslims. Um, now everybody's listening to the Muslim uh, hadith and and Quran if they want to listen to it. So, mm -hmm. um, and the other thing was during during it's actually it's been a negative and a positive as I think as Abdulaziz was saying. Um, the spirit, spirit, the one thing about prison is you know it take off yeah. isolation and. The last ten days of Ramadan is the peak of Ramadan. It take off. So now we've got prisoners who are in it take off for thirty days or even more. Uh, self, I see. Self realization, and the the chaplain can visit them. I visited some just last week and asked him how it was going, and I thought they would be really upset, but the spirituality upon them was unbelievable. And the inmate was telling me um, it's probably been far, this has been more helpful to him than than was before. And that was really astounded. And he said, well, we don't get to have our iftar together. But what we do, he, say, he said, we are separated in different cells and in different buildings. But we can see each other as far as 100 meters away. And during the iftar, we used to share our dates. But now this year, we put the light on for each other. And we wave to each other, and then we open our fast. And I thought that was really touching. There's inmates, the wind, they're looking out the windows, yeah. and 100 meters away, the windows are marked, and he puts the light on and off. If it's starry time, and he puts the light on and off, I look at the window, they wave each other, and then they go to the food. And they come after food, he said, we come back, and we put the light on and off, flash, flash it on and off. And if Mashallah. he's busy... If he's busy in reciting the Quran, he said, you hold his topi up at the window, just saying, busy in a worship. Wow. <laughs> and then he said, I go back, and then we go back, and we wave to each other. And I thought that was really, really touching. And I was just, I visited, and the same day I visited a so-called scourge of the sh shields. Mm -hmm. A life sentence. And I asked him, how's things going on? And this is an individual who once tried to take a go at me because he didn't like what I was saying. And, um, but I never banished him. And I met him again. I said, how's things going on after, after so many years? He said, Imam, thank you very much. He said, thank you. I've changed my life, he said. I've never fasted in my life. It's the 15th fast, and I've kept all 15 fasts. And, you know, I was really touched. He's never fasted. He can't read the Quran. And he said, I just fasted. I kept 15 fasts. Um, so the impact of COVID-19 has given them this spirituality of itikaf, you know, self-realization. Mm. Self <clears throat> um, and, yeah, there's um, that fellowship isn't there. Understandably, that fellowship is not there. But... but um, <clears throat> It has been replaced. Allah has been very merciful. Although he's taken the fellowship away from humans, I think the fellowship with Allah is more stronger now. Yeah. Imam Ajmal, I really appreciate your deep-seated passion. I can feel the passion within you. And 
I've been listening all along, enjoying the stories as well. And I think, Alhamdulillah, it, it, as uh, Abdul feels as well, that these um, touch you every time, every individual, every humanized story, every incident. Um, it, just as, you know, Shahid had mentioned as well, that, you know, it is a there's a human element to every hurt person, every hurt child that becomes the adult who you come across quite often. So it must burden your soul as well. And, and how do you cope? Who who do you talk to? Well, um, that's, that's amazing. You know, I never thought I did. I would need to talk to anybody, but I have to talk <laughs> to my doctor mostly. He helps me through my journey. My doctor mm -hmm. is not only my, he's my, um, I'm, I'm blessed to have a very good doctor. I wonder who that is. <laughs> he's a bit batty, but <laughs> mm -hmm. he's a very good doctor. <laughs> um, um, so I'm blessed to have a good, and you're so right. You are so right, Abdulaziz. Um, I never thought this would be the case, but um, I need support. And I have a good doctor. Family support is essential, my wife and kids, um, you know, um, in, within this journey. And my colleagues at work, um, my line manager and the people around me in the office, um, they help me. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's making oneself vulnerable and exposing your weaknesses. If you don't, expose them, then they control us. So it's having the right person to talk to, which you have really said. And I think that's something for the future. I need to bear in mind for training and development of chaplains that a more a chaplain gets more and more involved, he needs somebody to support him. Absolutely. Well, well, well I actually, brothers, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think it's something that I remember a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist said to me, he said, you know, we all need caring, but we forget that the carers need somebody to care for them as well. So that's very, very important. And especially in your job where you're caring for prisoners, you're listening to them, you're taking on a lot of their energy, you're giving them a space to um, detach a lot of this you need to then take that away and detach that yourself. So you need somebody to listen to you and also to to sort of be there for you as well. And I think people sometimes forget that when you're in one of these caring professions where you have to listen, uh, you need to have somebody else who does that does that for you. And inshallah, all that goes and supports you. But sorry, Niazmai, you, you were carrying on there. No, no, uh, um, Chaplain Adriel, absolutely. I mean, so, so the point is, is that... Um, Psych psychotherapists and psychiatrists, those who are in this line, even Shahidbai, they have people that they can talk to, a circle. And uh, often it's once a week. Um, my own mother was a psychiatrist, so um, fr from understanding how it works, that uh, it's very important as well for you as the human being who's being given all, all so much different, I mean, it's a form of energy, and you're trying to give your soul, your energy, your positivity to these other people um, to give them hope uh, through, you know, the wonderful uh, surahs and Quranic stories and, and, and just 
through yourself, your, your, your own uh, um, passion. And so that must take a lot out of you. Yes. And so I appreciate what you're saying. Please. But one of the other things um, Niaz, that I found when I was just um, verging into this work, I would probably make du'a maybe five minutes, ten minutes. Now, 26 years later, I'm making du'a for over an hour. And I think that um, connection with Allah gets stronger and stronger and stronger as we get more and more and more involved. Um, yeah. um, so the du'a aspect is gets empowered as we get more and more um, utilized for our services and as you and you quite rightly pointed dua isn't enough we need humans because we are humans you know yes. we need yeah. that human touch we need that it's so important to have that human network of wife children friends and um, work colleagues um, around you you know to um, to, to keep one going um, so yeah it's just as we're getting what you call um, more engrossed in our work, similarly the connections outside need to be strengthened. And I found that out from bitter experience. Um, yeah, but um, uh, yeah, it's, um, as you quite rightly pointed out, and that's something which I need to build in to the training and development uh, to recommend to the SPS for chaplains sure. as well. What, what's your favorite part? Of your role, my favorite part of my role. Um, oh God! I suppose it's maybe a Friday when you're going up there, and it's not like a sermon that you prepare or anything. You just go up there, and you don't know what you're going to say, and it just comes out the sermon. And it's mm. and it's almost like it's it's actually um, spiritual. It's touching everybody's part of some of the problems they've had for the whole week, and some get wound up. Some say he's talking about me, and they, I don't even know what their what their issues are. Maybe um, and the sermon gets delivered, and it's soft heated. It's um, getting it's touching nerves. Some people are getting agitated. And it's almost like going into a ring of about 50 people who are trying, you're standing up there, sitting down, everybody's trying to pull you down. Um, and after that, you go out, sometimes it's frustration, sometimes it's despondency, sometimes it's depression. The next week you come back and the very people you had lost hope in, they build up your hopes, they thank you for what you said last week. And you think, you say, wow. What did I say? I can't even remember. All I know is as it was like for me, this is useless. I'm getting nowhere. And that thing, when you lose hope, then Allah brings back you hope from the very people that you've lost hope in. That to me is very what you call magical. Yeah. It just um it's just unbelievable. I I just can't it it just it's like you never get used to it. It's never ever you get used to that thing. When you lose hope, Allah brings hope back to the person. Um, 
Imam uh, Ajmal, um, there was just one question that I must admit I was quite interested in. I mean, you obviously meet all sorts of people when you go into the prison service and you're working there as a chaplain. And, uh, you know, you know, you might even meet not just people who maybe are involved with drugs and things like that, but you might meet people who uh, are in jail for other reasons. Um, you know, they might be very privileged people who've just took a wrong turn and they've ended up in jail. I know, you know, you probably have met millionaires and people like that who have ended up in jail for one reason or another. When you come out of, when they come out of jail and you meet them, obviously they may not be aware of you before they go in, but obviously when you're in jail, when, when they're in jail, you are probably quite an important figure to them. But when they come out, do they still remember and value what you did when you were in jail is that something uh, i was wondering if you could maybe say something about that well, what, what's the, your experience when you've met them on the other side for the major i cannot think of a negative situation it's like all the things are coming to my mind it's like doing hajj with somebody you don't know yeah. and you go for hajj right and you come back, and you go your different parts, or different ways. But when you meet together, there's a bond, a unique bond that's been made through that journey of Hajj. Mashallah. So prisons like that, there's a unique bond that's made, although we go through a different ways, and we never forget each other. There's a unique bond that has been made there, just like in Hajj. Um, obviously, prison's not Hajj, but the spirituality which isn't Hajj, can be in prison. And I've no doubt about that whatsoever. That spirituality is, 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 is there, which, which Allah bonds human hearts together. You know, there's something inside as the soul, which cannot be weighed. It's not, it doesn't have any matter. That's the soul, which Allah believe, breathes into the human. You know, the angel breathes into the human. And that's the one that's connecting me, you, and everyone. And um, and we're all intricately, and inter, uh, intricately linked to that soul. And I think that connection gets strengthened through prison. Uh, Brother Abdulaziz, I think you... We're yeah. looking to say something, or yeah, I'm quite conscious of the time as well. Now, eight minutes. This has been an absolutely fascinating show, brother Imam uh, Jamal, and uh, I really want to thank you. Uh, in case we get cut off at the end, but um, I was wanting to. I was actually thinking of something meaningful there. Try to put some meaning into this. Hopefully, there will also be a lot of young people listening to the program tonight, thinking, you know, uh, about temptations. Um, First of all, what like, can you let people know what actual prison is like? Because you're obviously given a chaplain's perspective. Yes. But what, what's what in the cold light of day? What is prison life like? And how can you describe that to someone that doesn't even take their freedom? Uh, you know, we're taking it for granted, as I am myself. What 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 is it? What, how can you put that into words to describe what actual prison life is like to the young folks now in, in general? And can I just add to that? A lot of people maybe look at prison um, 
as what they see on TV. And for some of them, it might even seem glamorous. They might look at someone like Mike Tyson, say, "Oh yeah, he's been in prison." And look at that show, you know, TV show I've seen, and they're in prison. It's a different story. Could you shed a bit of light on what, like Brother Abdulaziz said, what is it actually like, and is it well, anything think, like what you see on the TV? I'm going to give you two um, examples. One example is a young man who was doing about 30-odd years for a horrific part of organized crime. He was doing about 30-odd years. And um, his f- fellow inmate who's now been released, he's probably listening in just now. Um, I asked him to listen in. He's been released. He told me a story just about two weeks ago. He said that fellow man, that fellow inmate, who everybody looks up to, um, organised crime um, the streets of Scotland were made like the streets of New York or something um, due to this incident and the judge sla- slapped a 35 year sentence or something I think something like that because that um, appalling so he said we were cooking once and the very person that everybody's looking up to um, big time Al Capone gangster, he said he started crying and crying and crying. He said to the other brother, brother, please don't end up, please don't end up like me. Please don't end up like me. My aunt's ill, my mother's ill. I don't, if I, I don't know if I'll ever see them. You know, don't waste your life when you get out here. Stay away, stay away from trouble. So one person who's taken a life is saying that to another person who's taken a life. And one person taking a life in, in a such so-called glamorous way like Al Capone or um, like, um, uh, let's say, I don't want to give, because it's burned by Data Protection Act, let's say um, in a Miami Vice type style killing, um, is saying this to another person. The other example I would ask you to re- um, check what Mr. Bronson said. The so-called most a film has been made about him, Mr. Bronson, and he has been now for about forty odd years, I think, in prison. And somebody asked advice. He said, "Well, look at the Cray brothers, the Cray twins." He said, "Look at them at their funeral of their mother." He said, "Wasn't that a pitiful sight?" He said, um, "He said, is that what you really want to end up like? That you can't even." Embrace your mother before her death. He said, "If anybody's thinking that I've got a glamorous life, I would ask you to look at the Cray, the, the Cray brothers. I think it was their the mother. Um, I've seen that statement um, of Bronson. I think it was a few days ago in in one of the articles. I'm trying to remember what article escapes my mind just now. I th- oh yes, it was, a, it was one of the papers um, regarding Mr. Bronson." So it's not glamorous. You know, the most valuable thing that we have after our Iman, uh, Iman is time. Time yeah. will never come back. A second yeah. in our life will never come back. A minute won't come back. An hour won't come back. A day, a week. How hideous it says burning up time, yeah. wasting time. It's the mm. most it's the most valuable com- commodity a human has been given to by Allah time after Iman. You know? 
so don't waste time freedom is freedom you know that's all i can freedom is freedom that's there's nothing greater than freedom the ability to look and embrace your children um your parents your wife the ability to go out i mean in the present restrictions of covid-19 um how aggravating it is just not being able to go to the to to go to lock lomond um or um, glenetiv or go for a walk um to be contained within a cell that's not glamour absolutely that's, depri- that's deprivation of the most absolutely commodity that allah has given us time so don't waste time you know, don't waste time by going in you know that's all i can say you know um yeah i think that would take all the glamour away so um if you if you see somebody um burning up a million pounds lighting a fire a million pounds i's put a kettle on top of um that fire i's put a cup um a bit of water milk sugar and some chai and he's having a cup of tea you call him an idiot so if we're burning up time just to get that little bit of satisfaction for that crime that's committed and all that time has been taken away well that's not that's not um intelligence so we so we've committed something but all that time's been all that money all that time has been taken away from the individual like a person having a cup of tea but he's had a cup of tea by building burning millions of pounds to light the fire to heat up the water and the milk and the sugar and the tea and he said well that's a damn good cup of tea we said well, i don't think you're very clever you just burned millions of pounds to make that cup of tea what well, am i much well thank you for that that's a very very good point and i think all of us listening to this program today um i i think we're actually very moved by what you're saying and there's a lot of thought there and i thought i hope that the listeners that are listening out there if there's even one person that's out there listening there and that maybe thought that there was something glamorous about going into prison or you know something that they think that they could handle i hope if even one person has been convinced by this and alhamdulillah i think we've definitely done a job So I just want to say thank you again Imam um, uh, Imam Ajmal and also Shahid Bai for coming on the show. Uh I want to thank them for their time on the show and I want to thank my co-host Abdul Aziz and Niaz Bai. I've got your names right for, for a change. Uh thank you for for supporting me on the show again and um we'll be back tomorrow at this time on late night live and we will be talking to a doctor from the ICU and we'll be talking about a very important subject of organ transplantation so alhamdulillah hopefully you'll join us tomorrow uh khuda hafiz and we'll see you then thank you for listening to radio ramadan 365 podcasts Make sure to visit our Radio Ramadan website at rr365.co.uk to access all of our podcasts. Stay tuned on our social channels for future content. 